listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. From Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. You would bow with me. Father, we thank you for the morning that we have and the time of singing to you and about you. Father, the time to pause for a moment in the, in the stillness of what it is to worship you. And so, Father, I pray that we continue in that worship. I pray this morning as we open your word that we would hear from you. Father, I, I pray that the um, words of my mouth would be honoring and pleasing to you. Father, I pray that what is true, um, Father, what would, what would by your Spirit and by our faith ring deep inside of us. And, and Father, for everything else, would you cause it to be forgotten as soon as it's spoken. We love you. We honor you. We pray that we make the name of your Son, Jesus, big this morning. And so that's how we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is um, it's a real treat to be with you this morning. More than you know, I love being out here in White House, and it's been too long since I've been here. And um, I feel very intimidated every time I'm in this place and, and standing behind this uh, podium because... Um, you guys get to hear Mark every week, and when you don't hear Mark, you, you oftentimes will hear Clint, and both those guys are, are amazing preachers, and uh, they're short. Uh, they, they are succinct and efficient with what they say, and I am not, and so I'll just tell you that right now, and so if you need a nap in the middle, it's all right. I don't, I don't keep a record of that, um, but you are on camera, so that's all I would say about that. Um, no, but Mark's one of my 
dearest friends, probably as I think about it, um, probably one of the best friends I've had in all of my life. And so it is, um, I know the privilege for you that he attends to the teaching of God's Word every week uh, in your midst. And so I, uh, I am thankful for that uh, for you. I, I miss uh, a lot of his ministry um, since he's been here. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. It's, a, it's the New Year's Eve day. Tomorrow begins a new year. And uh, like most of you probably, or, or many of you at some point or another, you take the new year and you, um, you pause for a second. You take stock of who you are and you say, well, who, who am I and who do I want to be? Who, you know, what are the things that I did well last year? What are the things I didn't do well? What are the things I would like to do or accomplish this next year? And we begin to make these lists and resolutions. And, and we, we are um, constantly, as uh, men and, and women and people that occupy space on this planet, constantly thinking about how can we be better? How can we improve? How can we be the better us that we know we want to be? Well, so that's the question I want to ask this morning, and the question is, who am I? There's an old preacher named William Tuck, and in one of his sermons uh, titled, uh, We All Need Roots, he tells of a man who stepped behind a platform. Uh, he, was, he was at a big conference, steps up on the, on the platform of the conference behind the podium, looks over the large crowd, and then in the microphone, he asks this, can anybody tell me who I am? He had lost his memory and, and with it no record of his past or his identity and his desperate appeal to the crowd was, does anybody know who I am? You know, all you have to do is turn on the TV or, or to get on your Facebook account and realize that there are people in this world who struggle to answer the question, who am I? I mean, we see it, teenage girls and, and boys for that matter, post selfies on the internet hoping people will affirm them. That people will esteem them, that they, they want to know who they are, and they're looking for anybody to tell them who it is that they might be. I mean, adults are no different. We want to be affirmed. We want to be told that we're okay. We're, we're all born with this deep need to belong. We're born with this deep need to know who we are. And in some ways, since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, we've struggled with our identity. I mean, we were created in the image of God and created to live with the people of God and we were created to bring glory to the Son of God. That's who we were created to be. But since we were kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, since sin entered the world, we are all of us like the man who stepped behind the platform and asked, does anybody know who I am? So if you're not there yet, go to Philippians chapter 1, and we want to see what it is that God's Word has to say about this. Philippians chapter 1, um, so what do you know about the Philippians? So the, the Philippians, this letter, was written while Paul was in prison. He um, had two years in prison under the protection of Roman government while he was awaiting trial. But Philippians is actually, it's a thank you note for a care package that this church had sent to Paul, that they had sent some money to Paul um, for, for his needs while he was in prison, so they send this care package. Paul 
sends Epaphroditus. This is the man's name who brought the care package. He sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter, with this thank you letter. And by this time in church history, around A.D. 60, um, there was a growing number of false teachers that were entering into the churches. They were teaching what you know, we, we would call today the secret knowledge or a gnosis. That they, were, uh, that they were saying, that listen, there's more to this new religion than just Jesus. That there are some secret things, and if you're willing to know, you can come away for this weekend, and we'll tell you what the secret things are, the secret things you have to do. And these teachers were unsettling the churches. And so what Paul's doing is he's writing, during this time, he's writing a defense on the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is all, all you need. And he's wanting to help believers reclaim their identity in the grace of Jesus. That, that because of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and his, um, you're complete. You're whole and you stand confidently in the grace of God. There's nothing else you need. Jesus has done it all. You don't add to it at all. You're complete in Jesus. Well, so this church in Philippi, I think in many ways, is Paul's favorite church. I mean, in fact, in many ways, they were the, they were the best. The church started by accident at the end of Acts chapter 15. You see it in the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Paul wanted to go east, and after he visited the churches, on a, after his first missionary journey, he's on his second missionary journey. Paul was wanting to head east, but he falls ill, he's on the run, and he has a dream. And there's this dream from a man, he's from Macedonia, which is north of Greece, and in the dream, the guy says to Paul, hey, come help us. And so instead of going east, Paul goes west, he lands in Philippi, uh, heads to the river, because when he gets there, there's not enough, there's not a synagogue in the town. So he goes to the river, he preaches the gospel, there's a woman named Lydia, she's there, she's converted, and, and, and in an accidental moment... The first church in Europe is founded. We, we're descendants of the Philippian church. And it's not a church, listen, it's not a church with an impressive beginning by any means. So the church is planted with three people, that's it. Lydia, who is probably a widow, she's um, probably wealthy and she's funding this deal. The second person to join this church, the second member of this church, founding member, is a demon-possessed girl. She followed Paul around saying she was a servant of the Most High God, who, 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 that Paul was a servant of the Most High God, proclaims the way of salvation. Paul gets annoyed, turns around, rebukes the demon to come out of her, and she gets saved. That's the second part. The third member, founding member of this church is a Philippian jailer who was watching over Paul after Paul and Silas get thrown into jail. Um, the earthquake comes, you know, Paul and Silas are singing hymns, there's an earthquake, the chains fall off, the doors open, the jailer sees this, he's sure the prisoners have escaped and he's about to kill himself and Paul shouts, don't do it. And so the man, he, he falls at Paul's feet and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to believe in Jesus and that's it. And then within a day, Paul gets banished from Philippi, the church has started, it, it's taken root, Paul later will send Timothy back to help them, but it's these handful of believers that came together to start this church, the body of Christ, under the 
power of the Spirit, and they became great. And Paul wants them to remain great. I mean, he wants to make sure that nothing threatens them. He wants to make sure they don't forget who they are, and he doesn't want them to forget that they belong to Jesus. He's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of their identity in Christ. So three things this morning, and um, we'll, we'll actually go through them quickly. But one, identity, who we are, is defined by what Jesus has done. Second thing is, it's defined by the purpose we have. And thirdly, it's defined by the day that you live for. So in Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2, you are defined by what Jesus has done. Put Paul and Timothy, he says at the beginning of this, servants of Christ Jesus and to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul viewed himself as a servant of Jesus. The word can be translated slave. It's Paul's identity. It's his resume. He defined himself in relation to Jesus. So think for a minute, how do you define yourself? There are many things that want to define us, you know, how much we have, how much we don't have. If we're married or we're single, if we have a good job or don't have a job, or where we're from, or who our parents are, or if we're pretty or handsome or not. All these things want to define us. And Paul, he had a whole lot to brag about. In fact, he talks about it later in the letter. His education, his family heritage, his religious status, all his accomplishments. But he didn't care about any of those things anymore. He had spent so much energy in his life trying to build his identity, trying to uh, uh, improve himself, but trying to become the very best version that he could be. In fact, he talks about himself, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Here's what it means. It means that he knew the Bible, he knew the law, he, he knew all the rules, and he'd spent his whole life trying to use the rules to make himself acceptable to God. He was trying to make himself righteous. He, he was trying to make himself right. And you know what? In all that he'd accomplished, in all that he'd become, he was still a slave to his sin. He was still a slave to, to the approval of other people, and he knew it. All that he'd done and all that he'd accomplished didn't bring him any closer to God. Do, do you know that about you? That all you could do or all that you could accomplish or or all the morality that you could muster up in this next year, it won't bring you any closer to God. In verse 2, he says, grace and peace. See, that's, that's what Paul longed for. That's, that's what I longed for. It's what you longed for, grace and peace. And here's how Paul thought it worked. He thought it worked this way. You do religious stuff and you'll be religious. You follow the rules, and you'll be righteous. You, you, you keep the law, then, then God will love you. See, that's how you get grace and peace. I mean, you, you work hard enough, you live right enough, and then you get it. Paul thought his identity was in the stuff he did, how religious he was. See, here's the uncomfortable thing for us today. It's easy to become 
what I might call churchified, okay? I just made that up. You don't have to write that down. But most people operate with the idea of Christianity, that Christianity is something that I do. You know, it's, it is somehow it's the ticket on the Jesus bus uh, to get that ticket is to, you know, get my act together, clean up my life, do more good than bad, and then I get a seat on the bus. And listen, I'm, I'm wandering here, but, but it's important. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 13, he says this, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. What he means is, is I have not come to those who claim that they're righteous, but to those who know that they're sinners. What he's saying is he's exposing the truth that as long as you believe that you can save yourself, you won't receive him as a savior. The law, morality, um, it, what it does, God's law, it discovers or it diagnoses the disease. The gospel is the physician. So the law, it comes to us like a, like a, you know, a CAT scan or, or, or an MRI, and it's able to tell you what's wrong. I mean, it's able to show you where the cancer is or where the disease is, or, but that's all that it can do. In 1979, there was this uh, student, a student in his dorm, and he decided to perform self-surgery. And so he'd been not diagnosed with a problem related to his adrenal glands, and so he did some research, decided to treat himself, and so he gave himself an injection of serum, hormone, and some other solution that he ripped off from an emergency room. And when this produced an abscess at the injection site, he resorted to self-surgery. Listen to how his psychiatrist reported it. At four o'clock in the morning of his surgery, he disinfected the dorm room with spray disinfectant. And can you imagine living next door to this guy? All right. So with his spray disinfectant and alcohol and draped an area with sheets that he'd previously sterilized. For anesthesia, he took oral barbiturates. He also took some hydrocortisone and prepared a canister of vaporized adrenaline, readying himself for a possible shock syndrome. He performed the surgery wearing sterile gloves and a surgical mask. Lying flat and looking into strategically placed mirrors to obtain an optimum view, he began by cleansing his abdomen with alcohol. The incision was made with a scalpel, exposure obtained by the retractors, and the dissection carried out with surgical instruments. Lidocaine hydrochloride was injected into the, each successive tissue layer during the opening, he controlled the bleeding with applied gelatin power, sterilized cotton thread ligatures, after eight hours, he had had minimal blood loss, but was unable to adequately exp uh, to obtain adequate exposure to enter the specific space of the abdomen that he needed um, because of the unexpected pain in retracting his liver. Exhausted, he bandaged his wound, cleaned up his room, finally called the police for transport to the hospital because of a rupture. Legalism is self-surgery. Making the list of, here's all the things I ought to do. Here's the way I can become the better version of myself. You know what that is? That's self 
surgery. It's shorthand. It's a shorthand word for the desire to save yourself. It is saying that I am God. And the true God is not God. Keeping the law is always lethal because you cannot survive your own salvation if that's your strategy. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was Jesus that set Paul free. And so when he thinks about life now, even in jail, he's free. He thinks about himself in relation to Jesus. Grace and peace. Jesus accomplished that on the cross and he gives it freely. And Paul, he's addressing the church and he calls them saints. He's reminding them of their identity, that they're set apart, that they're saved, that they're free. They're defined by what Jesus has done. Second thing I want you to see is that not only are you defined by what Jesus has done, but you're defined by the purpose that you have. Look at beginning in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Is this run-on sentence of, of joy and prayer and, and, and always because, he says, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What, what does Paul mean by when he says partnership in the gospel? Well, partnership is a word. It's koinonia. This word means fellowship or communion, being all in with something or someone. It's a, it's a partnership. They were in this with Paul. They were brand new. They weren't impressive. They had a widow woman, a formerly demon-possessed girl, a suicidal jailer, and then some other new converts. And within a week, they were sending money to Paul to support church planting of the next church because they wanted to see this thing keep going. What about the gospel part? What does it mean, partnership in the gospel? Simply put the gospel to this. It's the gracious gift of forgiveness of sin through the death of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. You're forgiven because what Jesus has done and the gospel is received by faith. And this little church, this little church in Philippi wanted to see more people come to faith. They were all in on this deal. They that was the character of the church. That was the nature of the church. Now, I want you to see this. Here's the other thing he says in this, is that in this purpose, this partnership of the gospel purpose, you're not alone in this. Look at what he says in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ is. Two observations there. One, spiritual growth is what God does in us. Spiritual growth is what God does in our life. He began the good work. He will bring it to completion. Now, certainly we cooperate with Him. Certainly we participate and yield to the promptings of the Spirit in our life. But it is God's work, spiritual growth, is what God does in us. And secondly, the other observation is this, is that not only is spiritual growth something individually happening, it's more than that. It's not only individual spiritual growth. The word translated you 
began a good work in you. It's a second person plural, maybe more accurately translated, you all or, or y'all. He began a good work in y'all, and he'll bring it to completion. Here's how we grow in the spiritual life. If one of the things you want to do this year is like, you know what, I want to grow. I want, I want to spiritually grow in my life. I hope that. I hope that's a goal for you. I hope, I hope that's what you want for this year. But here's how we do it. We grow, not by ourselves. We grow together. We need each other. God is working in us together. He began this work. He will complete this work. And it doesn't happen apart from each other. And we're in process. It's, it's, it's like this. The church is this beautiful portrait that God's painting, and, and the portrait is of Jesus. And He's still in the process of painting it. Here's what I used to think about church. I, I, I grew up in church, and then I, I fell away from church for a while, and the last place I ever imagined ever being was was working at a church pastoring at a church see i viewed the church i really did like everyone else around me you know several ways to view it one's like this gas station i mean you come in once a week you get filled up with some good feelings sing some songs hear positive words from the preacher hope he doesn't go too long i mean it's that kind of gas station deal or it's like a movie theater, you know, where you go and you watch the actors, they play the part of Christianity for a couple of hours and you get to escape from the real world and you're entertained. Some view it like a drugstore. You know, you come to have a prescription filled for, for a bad marriage or to, or to improve your life or to, to escape pain or, or suffering. Some view it like as a Walmart, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of everything. Caters to all my wants, makes it convenient, does it all at a low price. I mean... I expected the church to entertain me. I believed it was all about me. And on top of that, my experience in the church had been negative. I mean, my family, you, some of you probably heard me tell this story, but my family was the first divorce in the church I grew up in. It, had, it was 50 years old at the time. And as a, our family was the first divorce in this little Bible church I'd grown up in. Nobody knew what to do with that. I understand better now. They understand better now. But I concluded at an early age, you know, 13 years old, I didn't need the church. I mean, I still read the Bible sometimes. I, I prayed when I needed something. And when I did go to church, I mean, I sat at the back. I, I did my duty, but my heart wasn't there. I mean, I, I didn't think I needed it. I couldn't have been more wrong. There are a couple of things. There was this erosion in my life that was taking place, and I wasn't even aware of it. And it's what happens when you try to live the Christian life apart from the design that God intended. I was married. We had our oldest daughter, Maggie, at the time. She was two. But in many ways, in important ways, we were alone. We were like homeless Christians. I remember we decided to go to this church. We visited a few times, and only this time we were really, we were really going. We weren't going for the teaching. We weren't going for the children's ministry. It wasn't any one thing we were going for. We were going because we needed a home. I mean, we needed to be surrounded by the body. And it was the best thing that we ever did. And we were all in. And I started going to this Bible study. And I'd been Christian for most of my life. And I'd never been to a Bible study. And I went. And most of the men were older. And a few were my age. But I forced myself to go. I mean, 
I'm a naturally, naturally I am a shy person. I am an introvert. It's very hard for me to step into those settings. But listen to me. It was wonderful. I mean, older men sought me out. I sat next to some of them. I saw their Bibles were all marked up and worn out and matched the lives that they'd lived, you know. They were faithful men, faithful to the church, faithful to their families. My heart felt this longing. It's like, felt like home. Philip Yancey says this. God's the ultimate judge of hypocrisy in the church. And you have to decide that that's true and let it go. Look, I'm a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, all of our hypocrisy. We, we lean into Jesus, but the hypocrisy of our life, we trust that He's going to complete the work in which He started if, if, if what keeps you from being all in at a church is your view is, all these people are a bunch of hypocrites, and we say, welcome. C.S. Lewis, you know, the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, he had a similar experience. He didn't like church, and he didn't like it for all the same reasons most people don't. And he had the wrong view. He was a consumer. He, he missed the, the whole idea about partnership, and he writes this later after he falls in love with the church. It says, I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be bad poems set to worse music, but as I went on, I saw the great value of it. I realized that hymns, which I did not like, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by the old saint and the old man boots in the opposite pew. And then, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. And it gets you out of your pride. A healthy church, to help people, a healthy church helps lead people to places they do not know how to get to. I'm talking about places in the, in the soul, places of service and <coughs> sacrifice and humility and generosity. It's the good work God began. It, it happens in this community called the church, and we're not changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ apart from the body of Christ. We can't partner with the gospel apart from the church. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, speaking of the day drawing near, look at what Paul says in the last three verses, beginning in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless. What? For the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's the second time Paul has mentioned the day of Christ Jesus. See, in the, in the 21st century, we lose sight of all this, that, that all this could come to an end at any moment. That the very next thing on the timeline of God's great story 
is the return of His Son. And it could happen at any moment. In the history of the church, believers have always longed for and have been looking for the return of Christ at any moment. Believers are called to live in light of the return of Jesus. And Paul even speaks of a a crown. He says, henceforth in 2 Timothy 4, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing or longed for His appearing. I used to think about it when I was young. I'd imagine what it would be like. You know, you see a spectacular sunset or an amazing sky just before a storm, and I'd feel this longing, this this hoping that you know, this is it. Jesus is going to return. I think it's one of the great advantages of coming to faith as a child. You really, you really do have childlike faith. As we get older, as as I've gotten older. You find yourself living for the end of the day or the end of the week or the next holiday or the next vacation and you, you get so caught up in making ends meet and getting to the next deadline that you forget to stop and yearn to, to hope, to long for the day. I'll tell you, it, it has a powerful effect on who you're depending on by what day you're living for. You notice how Paul connects the day of Jesus Christ. You know what he connects it with? Pure, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and praise of God. Impurity, completely gone. Guilt and shame, completely gone. You're filled, overflowing with the fruit of righteousness. Everything you're struggling with now in your spiritual growth is burned away. And in a moment... You're perfect. Guess what? You're perfect in Jesus right now if you're a believer. When God looks at you, He sees the perfection of His Son Jesus. And when you see Jesus face to face, when the trumpet sounds and the sky shines with the glory of Jesus, when the King comes to those who are His, you'll be made like Him. You will be perfect in every Way. No more sin, no more sickness, no more imperfections. Everything that was lost from sin because of the fall, all of that's made new. All of it's restored. Do you long for the day? Paul wants their love for each other to grow. He wants their longing for the day of Jesus to grow. This is their identity. This is your identity, if you're a believer. This is who you are. You don't experience this by yourself. You experience this by nurturing your soul with the love of Jesus in the community of the saints. And you know what I'm I'm talking about? Worship. One writer says this, Humans were made to function in particular ways with worship of the Creator as the central feature. And those who turn away from that worship are thereby choosing to seek life where it is not to be found, which is another way of saying they are inviting their own decay and death. This is what happened to humanity. Adam and Eve, they turned away from God. They were banished from the garden. 
but the longing for the garden, the, the, the longing for all the purity and blamelessness and overflowing fruit of righteousness, all that remained because that's what we were made for. And the tragedy of Adam and Eve's children, the, the day came for them to offer sacrifices to God. Abel, he was all in. Cain, he, he wasn't. He played around with worship. He held the best back. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He wasn't with Cain's. And in Cain's anger and probably his shame, he killed his brother and God sent him away. And in doing so, he gives us this powerful picture to be on a journey towards a life that you'll never find. In Genesis 4.16, it says this, Then Cain went away, from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod is a place that's unknown to the reader. It's like it doesn't exist. I mean, the Bible gives no hint except that it's away from the Lord and east of Eden. Listen to what one writer says, and we'll conclude, but because when I first read that, 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 that sentence sent me to dreaming. Unknown to geographers? And what kind of land would it be, this nowhere land, which is not a place, but a lack of a place? The opposite of Eden. The seed of all man's restlessness is to be found in Cain's life in the land of wandering. Always searching for a place where his need for security might be satisfied. But the only place that he finds is that very country identified by being uninhabitable, by being nowhere. And let's not forget it, this Cain, he, Cain's the one that built the first city in an attempt to go it alone. He tried to create a human alternative to the reign of God. He placed the first brick in the foundation of what would symbolize uh, Babel and Babylon and Rome and the 21st century global culture and Cain's tragic memory looms large over our culture and our understanding of self as we continually seek more. Looking for our deepest needs to be met in the wrong places. Who, who are you? Paul's praying for this church's longing. For the day that Jesus of uh, Jesus Christ, when we're made whole, dwell perfectly in his loving kingship, with the fellowship of all the saints in the new heavens and the new earth. And as Paul writes, it's, it's not only about then, it's it's about now. It's it's about the church, every believer in the church growing in love towards God, growing in love towards one another place that we now get to taste what eternity will be like. Ecclesiastes 3.11, eternity has been set in our hearts. And the body of Christ at the local church is the only place this side of that day that we get to experience what is to come. And the way you ignite your longing for that day all the transforming effects it can have is to believe what Jesus has done for you. Believe it. And then get around others who believe it. 
and then give it away to everybody. If you would, would you bow with me? As we close this morning, I do want to ask you again, who are you? What's your hope for this year? As you think about where you'll be at the end of this next year if the Lord tarries, and the desires you have for your life, one, are they grounded in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who you are in Christ? And two, what's your strategy to get there? I offer to you this morning that it is right here in the midst of believers as God who began this work will bring this work to completion as He's painting the portrait of His Son, Jesus. And we become the brushstrokes of that magnificent painting. Father, I pray You do that in our hearts and our minds. I pray You would give us a, a longing, a, a hoping, a homesickness for the body of Christ. Father, having settled what it is that Jesus has done for us and, and believing it, then Father, coming together in fellowship and communion and partnership around the gospel of what Jesus has done. Father, our proximity to each other, our sharing our lives with each other, you're using that to shape us and to grow us and to mature us more and more into the likeness of your Son. And Father, as we taste that, our longing for His return becomes palatable. We will long for it and we'll need it and we'll want it. Father, you've even said you'd reward us for that. So Father, I pray in this new year you would do that with us and to us for us. We ask this the only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.